Shabbat Shalom. Well, we're going to continue in our study today, uh, which is the end of the age, the coming of the Messiah, and the rest of God. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at a particular eschatological belief system, and that is the greater Exodus theory. And just to kind of recap, to refresh your memory, uh, this is, and I'm oversimplifying, but this is basically a theory that states that uh, people believe, they're purporting that uh, there's going to be a physical return in the last generation to the physical land of Israel, and it's commonly understood that this is going to take place. People are going to follow the cloud, pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, and this is the most important part. That event of that happening constitutes the fulfillment of all those various biblical prophecies regard to the regathering. You think of Jeremiah 16, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 30, Ezekiel 20, Deuteronomy 30. I mean, we could go on and on. All these passages, these prophetic passages that exist, uh, they say that, that that would apply to that scenario. Very, very important. Well, today we're actually going to continue to look at the greater Exodus theory and we're really going to get to the heart of the matter today and really begin to uh, separate the facts from the fiction. And we're going to look at how the Bible describes this exodus without injecting any man-made ideologies or any man-made conclusions. With that said, we're going to get right to it. We have a little bit to cover today. I want to take you to one of the most, if not the most, prominent regathering passages in all of Scripture. And it's really, in recent times, has really risen to the level uh, of importance and focus, uh, especially considering uh, with Israel becoming a a nation-state again. We're going to go to Ezekiel 37, verse 1, and we read the following. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought uh, brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in, uh, in, in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. Moving on to verse 3. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, And you shall live, verse 6. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise. And suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Imagine just walking, just experiencing this and literally seeing this. How epic this would be, how dramatic this would be for Ezekiel. Well, now listen to what happens. In verse 9, also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. What is this passage talking about? What is this talking about? I'm going to tell you right now. It's talking about the resurrection of the dead. That's what it is. And this is not hard to figure out what just happened. The dead just raised up. 
They were just given life. This is all about the resurrection of the dead. And, and you think about Yeshua in John chapter 5. He says, do not marvel for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. They will hear his voice, which that tells us he's going to speak and the dead are going to respond. And he says, and the dead and Messiah, they're, they're going to rise up. Those who have done good will rise up to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil will rise up to the resurrection of condemnation. You think of Job 14. The, the, the chapter is talking all about the resurrection of the dead. And Job goes on and says, He shall call, you will call, and I will answer, because you desire the work of your hands. And so there's a voice, a voice that speaks at the end, and that's what rises the dead. And this happens simultaneous with the trumpet blast, this great trumpet blast. Well, when you look at this, look at what it says here. Let me highlight it for you. Thus says the Lord God, the Lord is speaking. This is the voice of the Lord. This is what causes the dead to raise. Think about, think about another passage. What about John 11? What did Yeshua do in John 11? He went to the tomb of Lazarus who had been dead for four days. And it was an amazing. And you've got you to understand, that whole event was symbolic of something that is greater that's going to happen. It was symbolic of the resurrection of the dead. Because what does Yeshua do? It says, and he cried out with a loud voice. He cries out with a loud voice. What happened when Yeshua spoke? He said, Lazarus, come forth. He rose from the dead. That's what happened. What is happening here in Ezekiel? The Lord is speaking, and he says, come forth. The four winds. I mean, it's the exact same thing happening here. I'm going to tell you something. This is the regathering. This is the greater exodus. That's happening. But we have all these additional details that are very important to understand because they uh, confine this into a specific eschatological timeline. Very, very important. Now, something else in regard to this statement I want to draw your attention to. Thus says the Lord, come from the four winds. Did you know that Yeshua actually speaks the same thing in the New Testament? absolutely fascinating he uses the same terminology in the exact same context let me show you and what's even more ironic about this is where does he do this he does this in matthew 24 that that chapter that we've been covering so comprehensively and and what was that chapter about it was all a dialogue in response to the apostles question will you at this time when will these things be They're asking him about the end of the age. What will be the sign of your coming? What will be the end of the age? When will it happen? And this is how Yeshua responds. Listen to what he says in verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power in great glory. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together. I want to stop right there. What is happening? What would you call gathering the elect of God? It's the regathering. It's the greater exodus. That's what this is. They will gather together his elect from what? The four winds. What did the Lord say in Ezekiel 37? He literally said, come from the four winds. 
Literally, exact same thing. And here we see Yeshua saying that uh, his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven unto the other. Same, same. Going back to Ezekiel 37. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet in an exceedingly great army. And you think about that. What is, our, what is Israel identified of? As, or I should say, as, when you, you start looking at the Exodus uh, and the Torah, you start reading it, it's identified as the armies of Israel. This is the army of Israel. And here you see it's an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Now there's a lot more to that. I'm not going to get into that today, but absolutely profound statement. All these bones that Ezekiel says through this global graveyard of bones that received their flesh, that received breath. It's the whole house of Israel. Then indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Moving on to verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, can we do something with the mic a little bit? I get excited at times and it's reverbing on me. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. This is the resurrection of the dead. That's what this is. But interestingly enough, okay, so we know the Lord speaks, the dead respond, they rise up. We know from 1 Thessalonians what happens. Something interesting happens. They go to meet the Lord in the air. Here we read, you're going to be brought into the land of Israel. I have a question. Is it speaking of a physical land of Israel? The physical land as we know it today? Or is it dealing with something much more lofty? Well, all you need to do is to read the New Testament and you will find out it is the latter. They are dealing with something. This reference here of the land of Israel is on a lofty status. The term itself is a reference to the kingdom of heaven. And as we continue throughout the weeks, this will become more apparent. This will become more clear. The land of Israel, is, it, it, it is the same as saying the kingdom of heaven. And when you understand this, it changes everything. It changes how you read this context. It changes how you read into the prophecy on what it's going to happen, what would constitute fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, some of you might say, well, Daniel, hold on a second. Isn't what we're reading right now in Ezekiel 37 actually happening? Aren't the Jewish people returning back to the land of Israel? Isn't that the fulfillment of the prophecy? And couldn't you liken that physical return to the dead being raised? I mean, just think about it. They haven't been a nation for almost 2,000 years, right? Well, let me answer the question this way, and let me preface by stating this first. The fact that the children of Israel, the Jewish people, have returned to the land after almost 2,000 years, you need to understand, this is not even up for debate. It is both miraculous and it is prophetic. It is absolutely the hand of God. No questions about it. All you need to do is study how this unfolded in 1948 
study the wars that happened in 1967, the Six-Day War, and you get into the Yom Yom Kippur War in 73, you read the reports, you see the videos on these things, the testimonies of the soldiers, and it will blow you away. Where two soldiers are putting to flight 30, 50, 100 men. Why? The men trembling and shaking with fear. Because the men looked out and they saw a great army. They saw angels. I mean, this is, we don't have time to get into this today, but uh, I'm just getting to the point that the Lord bringing the Jewish people back to Israel, the fact that they're a state today, yes, it's miraculous and it was only by the hand of God. And yes, it is prophetic in this sense. You need to understand with Bible prophecy, a lot there's, there's prophecies in this book, prophecies of finality, end time prophecies that require Israel to be living in the land. It's the only way these things can be fulfilled. Zechariah 14 is a perfect example. Zechariah 14 cannot be fulfilled unless the Jewish people are living in the land. But having said that, I ask the question, is the fact that the Jewish people physically have returned back to the physical land, does that constitute biblically restoration? And I would tell you, not even close. Not even close. What did the apostles say? Let's go back to Acts 1.6. Lord, this is the apostles after the resurrection. They're asking Yeshua, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Let's put this once again into historical context. The context in the first century was such as this. The Jewish people were planted in the land. They were living in the land, going to and fro, eating of the land. Number two, extremely significant, guess what? They had a temple. They had a functioning temple. Number three, they had peace. Until at least you get into the the, the later times, into the 60s, 60 AD and and forward, uh, that's when things began to break down. But when they made this statement, threefold, they had. They had peace, they had a temple, and they were dwelling in the land. Two out of three do not exist in the land of Israel today. The first century Jews had a superior case scenario compared to what the Jewish people are experiencing today. So what I am telling you is that the Jewish people coming back, that does not biblically constitute the restoration of Israel to which they were promised. Because all you need to do is read the papers and look at what is happening. Number one, they don't have control of the Temple Mount. It's desolate. There's an abomination of desolation sitting on the Temple Mount right now. Their people are getting butchered. They're getting stabbed with knives. People are lobbing rockets into Jerusalem, into Israel. More hatred for the Jewish people than, than any time on record. It's unbelievable. None of which constitutes restoration. There's not a Jewish person living in the land that would tell you, yeah, we have been fully restored. And this is imperative when you understand, when you're attempting to go to look at Bible prophecy, but you better understand this. The Jewish people, Israel, who God came to redeem, they have not been restored, nor did the physical return to back to the physical land constitute restoration. Dr. Michael Brown, who is a renowned scholar, and I, I like to quote him from time to time, I have a profound respect for him, He makes the following statement in regard to the Jewish people living in the land, or I should preface the Jewish people going back, physically going back 
to the physical land. Listen to what he says. This is what he says. Should all Jews move back to Israel? Now, I want to stop there. See, when you read this book, the Jewish people all go to the promised land. It's part of what constitutes the restoration. This is just a fact. Think about the Exodus. Are any Jewish people, is there any recordation of any Jewish people being left back in Egypt? There isn't. We're not told any one of them were left. They were all taken out to be brought into the promised land. All right? So Dr. Brown, he, he, said, he asked, should all Jews move back to Israel? Do the scriptures clearly call all Jews worldwide to return to the land? And are there pragmatic reasons for all Jews to be in Israel? He continues, for Jewish followers of Jesus, their responsibility is to the study of the word of God, seek his face, and live wherever the Lord calls them to live as part of their great commission and kingdom responsibility, be it in America, Russia, Israel, or anywhere else. There is simply nothing in the scriptures that clearly states otherwise, especially if the individual has a sense of calling to be serving in a particular place. Where does the New Testament hint at anything other than this? And aren't Jewish believers called to be a light to the nations? A profound assessment. Did you pick up what he's saying? He's, he's making the point that nowhere in the New Testament, there's not a shred, there's not one single verse that indicates that the Jewish people are to return to the land to receive their inheritance. That, that, that's the whole point of living in the land. Inheritance. Rest. That's the whole point. And what Dr. Brown brings up, he says, you, you read the New Testament, there's not even a hint of it. There's not even a breath, there's not even a fragment of a verse spoken of that. In fact... He draws their attention to the Great Commission. What was the Great Commission? To the Jewish apostles, Jews. What was the Great Commission? Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now I, I want you to understand, as you get into the book of Acts, you start to see this happen and, and forward into the epistles of Paul. Did the Jewish people go ahead and send out letters to the Gentiles and say, if you want to hear about the Lord, come, come to my house. You come here. They didn't do that. They went out to the four corners of the globe. They went out to the four winds. That's what they did. They went out to the nations. So they actually left what is identified as the promised land for salvation. You think about that concept. What an amazing concept. What a blessing to come upon the Gentile nations. To have the Jews leave their homeland to go save them with the gospel of Yeshua. Amazing. Just the whole concept is mind-blowing. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, in response to the Great Commission, what do we know that the apostles did? I'm going to tell you right now, they did exactly what Yeshua told them to do. And 12 men went out and they changed the world forever. Amen? 12 men went out with the most powerful message the universe has ever known and they transformed the world. Well, let me take you back to Matthew 24 because I, I want to put all this into line and just do an eschatological timeline. Matthew 24, 14, Yeshua says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. Isn't that interesting? So Yeshua indicates the end, it's not going to come 
until the work of the nations is completed. So let me ask the obvious question. Where are these believers who are preaching the gospel going to be at the end of the age? They're going to be at the four corners of the earth. And what will be uh, the response of the gospel going out? Will there be communities set up everywhere? Will there not be? There'll be communities everywhere. I want When you think about, when you go to the book of Acts, and you start reading, Paul's going out, they're, they're witnessing. How did they witness? They witnessed to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. They went to the synagogues, which existed all over the world. The diaspora. Synagogues were spread out all over the world. And the apostles were going out to them. And they were preaching the word. I challenge you, find one verse where Peter, Paul, or any other apostle instructs the men, get your behinds home. Go back. The concern was, accept the gospel of the Messiah, Yeshua. Their concern was to give them the eternal inheritance. That thing that the apostles were craving for when they asked Yeshua, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They knew what they had was not what they were promised. See, but the apostles, when they went out, they were going to give their people first, going to give the Jewish people exactly what the prophets promised them. The gospel of Yeshua, which will bring them into perfect rest. And Israel will be restored through that message. You know, maybe we'll have a little mid-sermon fun here for a second. What I've always found fascinating, I spent many, many years, I studied the temple. And um, and I'll just put a picture of it up here. Um, Here it is. Here's a picture of the temple, or at least part of the temple, and half is cut open so that you can see in. This is Solomon's temple. And years ago, I really spent a great amount of time studying the temple. And what you realize is that all of the things in the temple, such as here you have the Holy of Holies right here, and within that you have the Ark of the Covenant, though they have this turned the wrong way, uh, not to nitpick. But, um, and then you have, over here you have the menorahs, you have the altar of incense. You have the table of showbread, which was placed further up. Um, all of these items carry deep and profound prophetic significance. When you look at how, just, just to give you an example, when you look at how the table of showbread was set up, it was 12 cakes representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were set in two rows. Everything's established on a testimony of two. I mean, it's, it's, it's deeply profound, and this is in his house. This is the house of the Lord. You think of the menorah. How many branches does it have? It has seven. What did it do? It gave light. We come to the book of Revelation, and what do we see? In the book of Revelation, it talks about the seven churches. It was symbolic of the menorah itself, the completion, the whole of the church, which was to be light to the world. And so, I mean, we're not going to get into it, but the temple is deeply profound. It's deeply prophetic. Well, in regard to what we're talking about right now, there's something I want to bring to your attention. The brazen laver made of bronze. The brazen laver. And this is what the the, the Kohanim, when they went into the temple, they had to come and wash. It's Think of it as kind of a mikvah type of thing. They had to wash their hands and feet. Understand something very important. The Kohanim come in, they don't wash, they die. Very, very important. 
had to wash. Wasn't an option. You want to approach the Lord, you must go through, I guess what you would call a baptism. Now, isn't it interesting at the bottom of this, and this is correct, this is exactly how you find it in Scripture, there are 12 bronze oxen. 12 bronze oxen. Isn't that interesting? And why do I say that's interesting? When you go to the Torah, what do oxen represent? Well, at times we find in the Torah, oxen represent men. Not just any men, leaders, shepherds, judges, elders, those who go out to protect and defend the sheep, those who protect the community from sin, who make judgments. Do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. It was talking about leaders. It was talking about the righteous men of God keeping sin out of the camp. Keeping things kosher the way they should be. Isn't it interesting that there are 12 oxen at the bottom? And did you know there are three oxen pointed in each direction? And look at where they're pointed. Are they pointed on the inside? No. They're facing out. In other words, they're going out in every direction to the four corners of the earth. What are they carrying? The message of baptism. What was the great commission? Go out into all nations, baptizing them in the name of Yeshua. This is deeply profound. This, there's no question about what the significance of Solomon putting these 12 oxen under there when you think of the 12 apostles going out in every direction in a sense. The Jewish people going to the four corners of the earth and bringing salvation to the world. Absolutely powerful, that whole concept. Let me continue to build on this, going to Isaiah 11, verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, speaking of the Messiah, Yeshua. Uh, uh, the Mashiach ben David. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. And I just want to stop here. Make no mistake, there's only one Jew that has ever graced this earth that the entire world has sought after. And it is Yeshua of Nazareth. A massive testimony. There is no other candidate that could even come close. None but Yeshua. Going on to verse 11. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. And I want to stop here. If you want to have an effective conversation with an Orthodox Jew, one of the multitude of things that you are going to be, need to be equipped with is the understanding that Orthodox Jews do not believe the Mashiach comes twice. They believe the Mashiach comes once. And they will tell you, with all due respect, and kindly, and they're always gentle and typically friendly, very friendly, they'll tell you, I'm, I'm sorry, my friend, you do not know the Tanakh. The Tanakh only specifies that the Mashiach, he comes once, and that's it. It's over. Game over. He is in rule. He is in power. I'm here to tell you that the Tanakh actually does specify in detail the coming of the Mashiach twice. And this is one example. And it's very important to pick up on, especially if you want to understand eschatology. You want to truly, from a biblical standpoint, understand eschatology, understand this. The Messiah has to come twice. Again, all things established on the testimony of two. And here the prophet goes on. 
that he will, that the Lord's going to set his hand again the second time. Why? To do what? To recover the remnant of his people. To recover the remnant of Israel. That is fascinating. Isn't it interesting? Well, let me take you to Hebrews 9.27. Because the writer understands this very well. And it was appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Mashiach was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. Apart from sin for salvation. See, this time it's to gather. This time it's to recover the remnant of Israel to such as are pure in heart. Second time, two times. There's two comings. There are other places in Scripture that also indicate two comings in understanding eschatology. I want to share with you uh, a discussion in the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud. And it's a fascinating discussion about the Messiah. And two particular passages that are seen as messianic. Very, very amazing conversation. And this is how it goes. It is written, And behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. They're quoting Daniel 7. And it is written, Behold, your king comes to you, lowly and riding on a donkey. What is the meaning of the contrast? In other words, this Talmudic discussion, the Jewish people are saying both of these are messianic prophecies. Daniel 7, well, he's coming on the clouds of heaven. But we go to Zechariah, it's a totally different picture. Our king is coming to us lowly, humbly, and on a donkey. It couldn't be farther apart. What is the meaning of the contrast? Now, I can tell you, uh, there are Orthodox Jews that, that they love to get in this discussion. There are some that believe that they, what they did to reconcile these two passages is they created two messiahs. The, the, the Mashiach ben Yosef and the Mashiach ben David. The Messiah, son of Joseph, was the humble this is the one that would ride on the donkey. That is fascinating because Yeshua of Nazareth, his earthly father, was named what? Yosef. Joseph. And then, and, and then you get into the Mashiach ben David. The Mashiach ben David, Yeshua was actually of the lineage of David. So you, you look at this, and so the way they reconcile this is two messiahs, but it's not two messiahs. It's one messiah coming two times which scripture tells us would happen. Well, how does this particular Talmudic discussion uh, reconcile uh, this discussion? If the Israelites have merit, it will be with the clouds of heaven. And if they do not have merit, it will be lowly and riding on a donkey. <laughs> so in other words, they reconcile saying it's going to be one or the other. If, if we merit it, well then we'll see him on the clouds. If we don't, uh, he'll come humbly. What I... I, I agree with part of this in the sense of this. When Yeshua came riding lowly on the donkey, not one of us merited his coming. It's true. We did not merit it. But when he comes on the clouds of heaven a second time, we will merit his coming because of the redemptive work he performed in his first coming. Because of his righteousness, we will now merit it. It's just awesome. But it's not two messiahs it's one messiah coming two different times going to isaiah 27 verse 12 and it shall come to pass in that day that the lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of egypt and you shall be gathered one by one this is the regathering this is the greater exodus 
And this passage is critical for you to understand. They're going to be gathered one by one. Do you want to realize how dramatic the event is going to be? You need to appreciate what was just said. Do you know that the angels are going to come down, literally come down, grab you, and personally escort you into the kingdom of heaven, back to the king? I want you to experience how terrifying that would would be right now if the sky ripped open, lightning flashes from the east to the west, and you see the, the, the army of heaven, the army of Yeshua coming out, as we read about in Revelation 19, and these angels coming down in full force to go collect the elect of God and to individually grab them. And we see these pictures all throughout Scripture. We read it in Matthew 24. What did Yeshua say? And he will send his angels to gather the elect. His angels are going to go forth. Uh, you, you think about Elijah. How did he get to heaven? Did he just beam him up? He sent a messenger, a fiery chariot, came down personally and took him back. That is dramatic. Think about Lot. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah was a picture, according to Scripture, according to Peter, according to Jude, that was a prophetic story. What happened to Lot? We're told two angels went, and it literally, the text says, took him by the hand. They took his wife by the hand. They took his two daughters by the hand. They took them by the hands, and what did they do? Led them out. Absolutely amazing. And so here the passage in, in Isaiah 27, they will be gathered one by one. Oh, you children of Israel. I mean, that's just, that's just incredible. So it will be in that day. The great trumpet will be blown. The great trumpet, what, what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the last trumpet, right? This is it, the Revelation 11, the seventh trumpet. The great trumpet will be, will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord and the holy mount at Jerusalem. We need to ask the question, <laughs> what Jerusalem is the prophet referring to? Is he referring to the Jerusalem of this age, the physical Jerusalem as we know it today? This one, where we have the Dome of the Rock situated on the Temple Mount, the Islamic Waqf in control? Well, if we let the Apostle Paul answer this question, you might be a little bit surprised because the Apostle Paul tells us this is not the Jerusalem that the prophet Isaiah is referring to. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 4.22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. Now, obviously, Abraham had two wives. He had Sarah, and he had Sarah's maidservant was Hagar. Hagar was a bondservant. She's a bondwoman, and she bore Ishmael to Abraham. Sarah bore uh, Isaac uh, to, Rebecca, uh, to uh, Sarah. But he continues, verse 23, But he who was of the bondwoman, meaning Ishmael, was born according to the flesh, and he, Isaac, of the free woman, through promise. And you just look at the story of, of Isaac. It was an angel came to him and prophesied, Your wife is going to conceive, even though she was past the years of childbirth. Which things are symbolic? Now, that's powerful. 
Again, this just shows over and over again, you're starting to see this more and more. The Torah is not just a history lesson. The prophetic implication in all these stories, and Paul reveals it. He's saying, Isaac and Ishmael, understand, they're deeper than just the characters themselves. They're symbolic. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, verse 25. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Paul tells us that the Yerushalayim of today, it's in bondage. If, if you really want to appreciate the gravity of what Paul said, put it back in its historical context. The Apostle Paul made this statement in the first century during a time when the Jewish people were living in peace during the time they were going up to the temple. They had a functioning Kohanim. They were dwelling in the land inhabiting the city of Jerusalem in a very, very glorious fashion, right? And yet Paul, he comes out and makes the statement that that Jerusalem, that she's in bondage with her children. How in the world can Paul say this? Why would Paul say such a thing? Well, let me be clear. Paul didn't make this statement because he had some personal vendetta against a city that he himself cherished that he drew close to. He went up to the temple. He loved Yerushalayim. He said it because he understood a deeper reality. He understood the truth of the matter. He understood that the Jerusalem here, it is in bondage. It's not free. It's a product of a bondwoman. Let me ask you something. Has anything changed since Paul made his statement in the first century? Has anything changed with Yerushalayim, of her being in bondage. It's actually gotten worse. We have the abomination of desolation. We have the Dome of the Rock on there. The children of Israel are not in control of that. They're ridiculed if they dare pray on the Temple Mount. Again, bombs lobbing in. The poor Jewish people are literally being butchered. And the the UN today telling them when and where they can build and, and who... And when they can defend themselves against their enemies. That's insane. So I ask the question, has anything changed by Paul's statement? Is he an an ignorant Jew? Did he misspeak? Uh, Today would tell you. He knew exactly what he was talking about. But here's the good news. Unfortunately, Paul as he continues, after he makes this dramatic statement, that Jerusalem that now is, is in bondage, after that, he gives good news. And this is what he says. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is mother of us all. And it's kind of an amazing statement that Paul would say that Jerusalem is the mother of us all. You need to understand this was the common terminology of how the Jews classified Jerusalem. They classified it as the mother of them all. Read the Apocrypha. You read the Apocrypha, that's what's used. The very same statements used in regard to Jerusalem, that she is the mother of us all. And isn't it interesting, Paul utilizes that statement, being a first century Jew, something saying something that his brotherhood understood, he utilized this statement in regard to the Yerushalayim above. Okay? For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she 
who has a husband. And so he goes on to prove his statement, and it's just absolutely amazing how he does it. He goes to the prophets. He doesn't just say, well, this is what I think. This is my opinion. What's fascinating is if you continue to read this prophecy in Isaiah 54, it actually goes on to say that Israel is going to be blown out, meaning her borders are going to fly much farther than they've ever flown before, if you will. And all you need to do is go to the book of Revelation. Look at the dimensions of the city of Jerusalem. It reaches to Russia and down to Africa. It's massive. If what's recorded in Revelation is accurate, and I believe it's true, man, the Jerusalem that above, it's way different than what we see today. Way different. It's massive. And that's, it corresponds to Isaiah 54. Her land is going to expand. It's going to expand into the nations. Is actually what it says. It's going to expand into the nations. They're going to inherit the nations. Absolutely phenomenal. A heavenly realm, what, this, this new Jerusalem, when, when we think about this, this new Jerusalem, we say the concept of the Jerusalem above, she's the mother of Saul. You've got to understand these are transposable terms for the kingdom of heaven. And I mean, this is not, this is, you don't got to go very far there with that because it's kind of the obvious. And as we get into the New Testament, it's made very, very clear. Um, I want to continue. Uh, you know, in the first century, with the coming of Yeshua, Jewish believers started to see things within Scripture that they had never seen before. Uh, things began uh, to take shape and form on a level that the rabbis before them had never taught. When you think about that, that is really an incredible thing. You think about Luke 24, Yeshua. He says, he, the passage quotes to his disciples and actually gets into it that um, he gave them, he opened up their understanding to comprehend the scriptures. All right? So that, and that, that's in Luke 24. And because of that, we find as we continue into Acts and so forth, which is Luke part 2, and we get into the epistles of Paul, uh, we find they started to talk like no man ever talked before. It was really revelatory, okay? And so I want to take you to a passage in Scripture. I'm trying to be careful how I build into this and build this up. So I, I think about what I'm doing here. There is a passage in Scripture that is monumental. And every one of you, you go home, you need to read it, and you need to pick it apart. To really understand and we're just gonna we're just gonna look at it briefly today but with the coming of yeshua there was a paradigm shift cataclysmic shift in things that would forever change things and this is what it says in luke 16 16 the law and the prophets were until john since that time the kingdom of god has been preached and everyone is pressing into it here we see the paradigm shift began with the ministry of John the Baptist. A revolutionary Jew with a revolutionary message. What was John's message? You remember? It was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And, and so instead of having this horizontal faith, if you will, instead of looking at things physically on the earth, focus physically on, on the temple, a radical new message came on the scene that we re- repent because that kingdom of heaven is drawing nigh. Now, I, I want to be clear. You will not find that statement anywhere in the Tanakh. You will find, yeah, I mean, you're going to find, yes, repent over and over. Those, that fills the pages of the Tanakh of the Lord calling his people to repent. Go back and show me where it says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's something snapped. Something triggered with the coming of Yeshua. The pin was pulled. And now all of a sudden he's telling him, no, look straight up. Look straight up. This was a message that turned the heads of the Jewish people to the heavens looking for the kingdom of heaven to come, uh, looking for that restoration of Israel, looking for that rest we've been talking about. Let me give you an example. Just, when you study Yeshua's teachings, look, look, at, look at how he states this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's not here. Shemaim is not here. It's not Eretz. It's in heaven, right? Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No longer are we to seek an inheritance here on earth. Rather, we're to be focusing on the inheritance that's going to be revealed with the coming of Yeshua, the second coming, with the great trumpet blast, with the dead being resurrected. And this is why, you know, it's with this information, this is why we find Paul saying absurd things like the Jerusalem which now is, is in bondage with her children. It's because he had this revelation. He had the knowledge of the Messiah, Yeshua. He knew at which point he was in in regard to the dispensation of time. He believed he was living at the end of the age. And he was right. Because with the coming of the Messiah, the end of the age began. The final moments of the end began. The writer of Hebrews, again, uh, seems to talk absurdly. And I want to take you here because this puts this all into context. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that may be burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. Now, obviously, the writer's taking you back to Mount Sinai. The children of Israel brought out of Egypt, they're brought to Mount Sinai to enter into covenant with God. And they had to set barriers up around the mountain. Not, neither man nor beast could go. It was holy. You're dead. You were to be killed. If that happens, and you would shoot an arrow because you yourself can't trespass on that. It continues, verse 21. And so terrifying was the sight that Moshe said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling, but you have come. Where have we come? To Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, To an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. See, things changed with the coming of John the Baptist and the the, the gospel of Yeshua that went out. The focus went from here, from Jewish people coming in and accepting what God gave them legitimately, which is the physical land. That doesn't change. 
But now God said, nope, look up. Look up, turn your eyes to me, to Shemayim, to your inheritance, to your true inheritance. And believe me, today, uh, this is why with things getting worse and worse in Israel, in Jerusalem, it's going to become easier for the Jewish people to receive their Messiah, Yeshua. And they're going to want to stop looking around and they're going to look up to him. And when they call on him, he's going to come. When they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, you go back to Exodus when they were calling upon them. The Lord heard their mourning, their pain, and their sorrow. And he responded. That's when he responded. And that's where tribulation really began. And I'm telling you, there's Jewish people in the land today, all over the world. They're calling upon God. There are more and more Jews giving their life to Yeshua. It is becoming normal yet once again. Hebrews 13, 14, moving ahead. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. You won't find a Jew prior to the first century running around, telling people, looking at the temple, looking at the beautiful city of Jerusalem, and saying, here we have no continuing city. If you want to get stoned, that's a great message. You about your brethren. I'm just telling you, you want to get stoned, that's a great message. There was a revelation through the lens of the Messiah Yeshua, through the Holy Spirit, that Jewish believers were given that they took to the world, and now that we have today. And it's to look up. Hebrews 11.9, we're getting close to the end here. By faith, Abraham dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. Again, who talks like this? Abraham, what was he promised? What did God promise him? The land of Israel. Well, here the writer says, well, he dwelt in it as in a foreign country. As a foreigner. That was supposed to be given to him. He dwells in it as a foreigner. Dwelling in tents with uh, Yitzhak Ve'Yaakov. Their heirs, uh, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. See, Abraham was enlightened. He knew that what he was living in, that's not what God promised. It was way more. He wanted exactly what is said here. He wanted the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And what's amazing, when you go into the book of Revelation, towards the end of Revelation, we find that there are 12 foundations laid on the city walls. And they are the names of the apostles of the Lamb. Awesome. It goes on and jumping down to verse 12. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky and multitude innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. They all died. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. Did you get that? They all died in faith. They didn't receive the promises. They dwelt in the land, but they didn't receive the promises. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrim on the earth. I want to take this to the next level. This age, this world, is not ours. It's not been given to us. We don't want it. Yeshua in John chapter 18 says, my kingdom is not of this world. And therefore, I'm going to say, my kingdom is not of this world. I want to be in Yeshua's kingdom. Wherever his kingdom is, doesn't matter. That's where I need to be. And that's where I need to focus. 
There is nothing here on this earth for us. And that's why all this rising tension that is happening at the, at the very navel of the universe in Jerusalem and in Israel and scattering throughout the rest of the globe with the attacks against the Jewish people and attacks against the Christians for bearing the testimony of the king of the Jews, they're going to increase because, as I said before, they are kicking us. Satan is kicking us out of his kingdom. And that's just fine. There's nothing here in this world for us. Going to verse 14. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. That's where the focus is, is vertical faith. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And what is that city? We'll close with this. It is the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21.1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. How does Bereshit start? How does the book of Genesis start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very end of the book, what does it say? I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Something epic and monumental will happen. The new Jerusalem is literally going to come down. We'll talk more about this and the reality of it. First Thessalonians, Paul says, we ascend into heaven. Well, as I mentioned before, because we need to be concealed while his wrath ensues and while he creates a new heavens and a new earth. But that's not going to be it. Then the new Jerusalem is going to come down and our ultimate destination is going to be here, but it's going to be new. All the sin and corruption will be burned out of it. Because all the elements that we're told are going to melt with fervent heat. Peter tells us this in Second Peter. So you look at this. Here the new Jerusalem is going to drop down. And it will be as it once was. It will be heaven on earth. Again, it will be like the Garden of Eden. It will be the land of Israel.